Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, full speed ahead, the long-awaited cornerstone of the famed Gateway Tunnel project breaks ground with a new infusion of some major cash. With these new dollars, Gateway's future is assured. All systems go, there is no turning back. And coming home, a New Jersey family gets out of Gaza and residents in Ridgewood try to prove peace is possible amid rising tensions. We urge our fellow citizens to remember that what unites us is far greater than what divides us. Also, sexual harassment persists in New Jersey political campaigns, according to a new investigation by NJ Advance Media. There's just nowhere that they feel comfortable reporting this or no system set up in New Jersey's political campaigns to handle these kind of allegations. And crisis prevention. They are actually being tasked with trying to find solutions, that outreach and that connection to get those people the resources that they need. Social workers partner with law enforcement in Red Bank to help de-escalate mental health 911 calls. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. Funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. And Orsted, committed to the creation of a new long-term sustainable clean energy future for New Jersey. From NJPBS, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Friday. I'm Joanna Gagas, in for Brianna Venosi. The machinery is primed and ready to dig at the site of the Gateway Project, a sign that work on the train tunnel under the Hudson River will officially begin. The project that's been in the works for years just received a new chunk of change from the federal government, bringing the total to $11 billion that the feds will fund. And as senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, that infusion of cash means a major reduction in the the state's fiscal responsibility for the project that transportation experts say will dramatically improve the lives of New Jersey residents commuting in and out of New York. These are hard dollars that translate into hard hacks. An exultant Chuck Schumer announced construction of the Gateway train tunnel project under the Hudson River began in earnest today, hyper-fueled by the Biden administration's promise to kick in another $3.8 billion in funding. It boosts the federal share up from half to more than 70% of Gateway's $16 billion price tag. And brings the federal total to over $11 billion. With these new dollars, Gateway's future is assured. All systems go. There is no turning back. This represents the largest infusion of federal funds for any mass transit project in the country in modern history. Uh, and what that means for New Jersey is it'll reduce the state's financial burden. Chris Kaluri, CEO of the Gateway Development Commission, he says New York and New Jersey are each obligated to pick up a quarter share of Gateway's costs. But with this extra shot of Federal Infrastructure Act funding, he roughly guesstimates... So New Jersey's contribution could be as low as $300 million. That's it for the entire project. That's so a huge, huge deal. 
This, I can't give you a dollar amount, but this meaningfully lessens the burden on New Jersey. We'll go back and redo our financials, but this is very good news for New Jersey in terms of our share. We did a lot of uh, financing for the Portal North Bridge, so we got a lot of credit for that. Um, and we're really hoping to see a very low investment for New Jersey to see these tunnels built. Construction equipment framed the announcement at the Hudson Yards complex in West Manhattan. Deep underneath, workers will start building a 550-foot-long reinforced concrete box to protect the Gateway Tunnel's right-of-way from Penn Station right up to the Hudson River's edge. We're trying to create a level of mobility for people that will make a difference in their lives. Gateway will provide an enormous economic incentive. When we are done, we will double train capacity between New York and New Jersey. Gateway advocates feel the need for speed. Demands rising. A new study from the Regional Plan Association predicts that as commuters reconfigure their post-COVID work-from-home schedules, Trans-Hudson Transit ridership could exceed its pre-pandemic peak by the time the new tunnels completed in 2035. Meanwhile, the old tunnel keeps deteriorating, its two tracks damaged by Superstorm Sandy corroding faster than Amtrak can repair them. Every year of delay adds another billion dollars to Gateway's price tag, an extra 80 million a month, warns RPA President Tom Wright. Time is not on our side because the costs of these things go up exponentially. And the longer it takes to do this project, the more expensive it's going to be. Wright worries if one track fails, it would slash rail service by 75%, sending economic shockwaves across the nation and New Jersey. The RPA calculates about a half million North Jersey residents who commute to New York City earned $62 billion last year. And politics remains a wild card. For 30 years, people have been talking about this particular project, a lot of talk, not a lot of walk. President Biden's infrastructure coordinator noted they've funded some 38,000 projects. U.S. Time. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg pointed out the 200,000 daily rail riders who won't have to worry about disruptions after gateways built. People who will be riding through those tunnels free to think about their families, their upcoming job interview, the homework assignment, whatever it is that matters most in their lives. What happens next in New Jersey? A big portion of Tunnelly Avenue needs to be elevated to make way for two massive boring machines. They'll start grinding their way underneath the river beginning in 2025. In Midtown Manhattan, I'm Brenda Flanagan and J Spotlight News. Two U.S. families trapped in Gaza just came home. Hanin Okal, a mom from Union, New Jersey, and her three kids, and a family of three from Massachusetts. An aid worker from New Jersey, Maha Albana, was also able to leave Gaza. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives, led by new speaker Mike Johnson, passed a $14.3 billion aid bill for Israel that did not include President Biden's key initiatives like humanitarian support for those in Gaza, aid for Ukraine, and funds to increase security with China and Mexico. That bill is dead on arrival in the Senate, and the White House says the GOP plan fails to meet the urgency of the moment and would have devastating implications for our safety and alliances in the years ahead. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Israel's defense minister today, urging a pause of the fighting in Gaza to allow for more humanitarian aid. That request was denied as Israel has reiterated 
It will not pause until hostages held by Hamas are released. The leader of Hezbollah spoke today for the first time since the start of the war, indicating that conflict between Hezbollah and Israel could escalate if Israel doesn't stop its attacks on the Gaza Strip. And while that conflict is nowhere near resolution, here at home, a rabbi and an imam in Ridgewood are demonstrating that peace is possible even when there's disagreement. Ted Goldberg spoke to them about how they're urging their communities to come together in the midst of so much tragedy. We are fortunate to call the United States our home, where we live in peace, safety, and freedom amongst our diverse faiths, ethnicities, and viewpoints. A rabbi and an imam in Ridgewood joined forces today, hoping to unite Jewish people and Muslims. We recognize the pain and suffering of all those affected in our community by the crisis in the Middle East. The war between Israel and Hamas has sparked protests and renewed fears of bigoted attacks against Jews and Muslims. Rabbi David Fine and Imam Mahmoud Hamza haven't gotten swept up in anger since they've been friends for 15 years and live a block apart in Ridgewood. We see each other all the time. Mahmoud's seen my children grow up. We build a relationship. You know, we feel like we are living in the same neighborhood. We're brothers and sisters. We care about each other. We have the same dreams. Fine and Hamza hope the Jewish and Muslim communities can agree on peace and understanding going forward. There are many significant things that we don't agree on, but we agree that we pray for, for peace and we agree that we are friends and we are not fighting with each other. While we may disagree on political and other issues, we are all bound by a common decency as neighbors and as Americans. We urge our fellow citizens to remember that what unites us is far greater than what divides us. Fine and Hamza say it's important for Jewish and Islamic communities around New Jersey to engage in dialogue about sensitive subjects, even if it leads to people disagreeing with each other, maybe especially if they lead to disagreement. I say, you know, Rabbi, this is going to hurt. He say, Mahmoud, okay, we're open-minded to listen to each other, to try to understand each other's feelings, and we realize that we're not going to agree on everything. Dialogue is hearing each other, not yelling at each other. Uh, that's the model for uh, what education is, what being neighbors are. Communities need to come together. Peoples need to come together. Uh, war is when dialogue fails. And occasionally, dialogue can succeed. Sometimes even we change our minds. With experience, with living together, we, can, we might change our minds. And, you know, it's just we have to be able to respect each other and understand our differences and take it from there. Ridgewood has avoided large-scale anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. This rabbi and imam hope to keep it that way, even if it leads to an argument sometimes. In Ridgewood, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Just a few years ago, the conversation around sexual abuse and harassment in New Jersey politics felt like a watershed moment. Katie Brennan came forward to say that she'd been raped by a campaign staffer while working on Governor Murphy's campaign. Allegations that were denied, but that launched a working group of women who developed a new plan to create oversight of campaigns in the state. But fast forward five years later, and those plans have all but failed. Brianna Venozzi sat down with NJ Advanced Media journalists Kelly Habor and Sue Livio, who've been covering this topic and have some startling new allegations of sexual abuse that's continuing in state politics even today. 
So, Livio, Kelly Habor, um, thank you for joining me to talk about this, um, what I'll say is a really important piece of reporting. Kelly, let me start with you. Here we are, years after the Me Too movement, there have been work groups, there have been reforms, legislation issued, uh, introduced, and yet we are still seeing these stories of really disturbing behavior. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've heard from women across uh, politics here in New Jersey that a lot really hasn't changed on political campaigns. They're still experiencing sexual harassment. Some report sexual assaults and misogyny and groping. And a lot of women are saying it's because there's just nowhere that they feel comfortable reporting this or no system set up in New Jersey's political campaigns to handle these kind of allegations. It's been uh, it's been difficult and surprising for a lot of people who've been watching this since the Me Too movement that not really much has been reformed here. And Sue, can you share with us some of the personal anecdotes that these women came forward with? Um, and were they kept anonymous um, or did they want their names put out there? So we gave them the opportunity to speak with us first completely off the record. For the most part, most of these women wanted to remain anonymous because either they still work in New Jersey politics and government um, or just the shame of, of what they went through. And the, the stories are, are very heartbreaking and, and we feel, we, we watch them relive them, you know, being groped, being having too much to drink and relying on someone to take you home or um, just trusting somebody, you know, hiring you, thinking, you know, you're doing a great job. And then all of a sudden you're getting kissed and groped against your will. Kelly, let me ask you, though, you mentioned um, about reporting these incidents. Did any of these women go forward to the police? Um, there's no HR, so to speak, when you're working on a campaign. So did they document or report formally these incidents? Yeah, most of them said no. They were afraid not only of affecting their own careers, but they didn't want to affect elections or affect anything about how the race was going. They didn't want to give ammunition to their uh, opponents in the in the races that they were working on. So to Kelly's point there, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the years about whether or not and, and how much this plays into the lack of women who are entering politics. Where do things stand in terms of reforms that have been proposed and have actually been enacted making a difference? So we wrote a story in 2019 that first took a look at this, um, some graphic details there. At the time, Senate Majority Leader Loretta Weinberg introduced a bill that would create an investigative unit. The bill passed the Senate. It never got any traction in the Assembly. The bill is still pending, but there's been no hearings. And it's hard to know because we're just on the eve of an election. No one is wants to talk about this issue right now. So we'll have to revisit it post-election to see if that bill can be resurrected. Uh, and that article, of course, stemming from uh, the Katie Brennan incident with Al Alvarez. Katie Brennan, of course, worked on Governor Phil Murphy's gubernatorial campaign. Sue Livio, Kelly Habor, thank you so much for joining me.
Thank you. Thank you. Mental health care has become a pretty mainstream conversation these days, both at kitchen tables and in New Jersey political circles. So why isn't it something we've heard more of on the campaign trail le leading up to Tuesday's election? I'm joined now by mental health reporter Bobby Breyer, who looks at how this issue is playing among Republican and Democratic voters this election season. Bobby, good to sit down with you as always. What can you tell us about where mental health is falling as a, as a priority this election? And really, frankly, why aren't we hearing more about it? Yeah, you know, right now we're hearing a lot about issues, whether it's related to offshore wind, uh, abortion, or issues surrounding education. Uh, but right now, there's a large consensus, both among Republican and Democrats uh, throughout the state, uh, that this is an issue that's, of course, important from a policy perspective, but it's maybe not an issue that's driving voters to the polls. It's really not a wedge issue or a controversial uh, issue that we're going to see move voters uh, come this November 7th. It's an interesting point because we've certainly seen policy issues become hot button talking point issues during campaigns. Um, we've seen the Murphy administration really expand a number of programs. Just kind of talk us through where mental health has fallen in terms of a priority in this administration. You know, it's become a, a major priority, especially both during and, and after the height of the pandemic. Uh, in this latest state budget, we've seen uh, millions of dollars go to different programs related to mental health. Most notably, um, the Arrive Together program has received well over $10 million. In Arrive this Together is the, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Arrive Together is the program that pairs a police officer with a mental health professional exactly. responding to a 911 call. Exactly, yeah. In addition to Arrive, we're seeing uh, a lot of money in this latest budget go towards this hub and spoke model, uh, this new program to get more mental health to more students across the state. That's about $43 million. That's the NJ4S, right? The, the New Jersey Statewide Student Support Services Program. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And then finally, we're seeing uh, just around $32 million uh, going to continue to fund the 988 Suicide uh, and Crisis Prevention Lifeline. So significant money being spent. What are you seeing <laughs> in terms of support from Republican and, and Democratic uh, members of New Jersey's legislature? There's been widespread support uh, both on both sides of the aisle really related to what more can be done to address mental health. Uh, there's been a, a number of key priorities that uh, Democrats and Republicans have focused on, uh, one of which uh, that was passed just before the budget was signed into law uh, was a mental health diversion court uh, that would allow folks to uh, be diverted or redirected away from the criminal justice system uh, for a, a nonviolent offense. That's just one example uh, where we're seeing a, a lot of these mental health issues pop up in Trenton and whoever is elected uh, this November 7th afterwards, we're going to see uh, more of these issues uh, be top priority policies for lawmakers. So not something that if Republicans were to take over control of one of the houses in New Jersey, we'd likely to see funding decreased for? Not at this point, I would say, you know, it would certainly be something that would be a top priority uh, among the Republicans uh, that I've spoken to. And of course, Democrats have really been pushing this issue as well. So although it's, it's a, a, not a main campaign issue right now, it's certainly going to be a hot topic uh, in Trenton uh, yeah. for months to come. Bobby Breyer, great insight as always. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. For more on all the campaign issues and which candidate is running in your district and where you can vote, head to njspotlightnews.org and click on the NJ Decides 2023 tab for all your election needs. And make sure you join us right here next Tuesday, November 7th for our live election night coverage, beginning with David Cruz at 8 p.m. And then Brianna Venosi will take over with a team of reporters and analysts starting at 9 p.m. 
In our Spotlight on Business report tonight, Netflix is building a $900 million production facility on the site of the Fort Monmouth Army Base. Netflix won the bid to build the studio that'll be 500,000 square feet and will include 12 sound stages. Now to build on the base, Netflix will have to knock down at least 95 former Army buildings, some that were built as early as the 1920s. The building plans have to be approved by the three towns that contain the Army Base, Eatontown, Oceanport, and Falls. The governor today welcomed Netflix to the state, emphasizing all the new jobs that this development will bring. Together, these union workers will literally build a new cornerstone for New Jersey's burgeoning film and television production industry. And then once this facility is completed, our hardworking IATSE or IATSE members will be the beating heart behind every production, pulling together sets and enabling the words written on paper to come to life. Turning to Wall Street, the market reacting to a lukewarm jobs report that was less than anticipated, the economy adding only 150,000 jobs. Here's how the markets closed for the week. And be sure to tune in this weekend to NJ Bisbeat with Raven Santana. She looks at New Jersey's role in the global economy, exploring the new partnerships created from the governor's East Asian economic trip and how our state universities work with international schools on medical and technological research. Watch it Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday morning at 9.30 right here on NJPBS. While New Jersey continues to expand its Arrive Together program that pairs police with mental health specialists when responding to a mental health crisis call, we're seeing a growing number of towns developing their own response programs. Red Bank is the latest to pair social workers with police responding to 911 calls. Raven Santana has more on what this Pulse program looks like. We get a lot of calls from the public concerned about something somebody is doing that's clearly a mental health issue. The police leave. And then what happens next? Law enforcement responding to individuals having mental health crisis has been a hot button issue across the country, which is why a handful of police departments here in Jersey want to help those calling 911 with matters involving substance abuse, homelessness, or mental health, which is why they partnered with licensed social workers in the group Proactive Union of Law Enforcement and Social Service Experts, also known as Pulse. They're able to pay for the new partnership through its share of a settlement in an opioid class action lawsuit against pharmaceutical companies and distributors. So now that we have this program, when the police go and they file their report, they're checking off that there was a concern and then that report is going to Pulse's desk and then they are actually being tasked with trying to find solutions, that outreach and that connection to get those people the resources that they need. At the um unfortunate incident surrounding George Floyd's death. So we look at this as uh, really sensible police reform. My partner and I got together to figure out like how as social workers we can be a part of the conversations when everybody's speaking about defunding the police and this, you don't want to take services away. We want to see how we can add services and be more effective. Shantae Middleton is the co-founder of Pulse, which started in February 2023 in an effort to help police provide help to people with mental health conditions. As well. So in terms of our hiring practice, we do look at the community and what their needs are and, based, uh, and hire based upon that. Statistics, when you look at police involvement, it's Oftentimes we're, we're misunderstood and I think that um, if I can help be a face to and be a link for some of our individuals um, that look like me, 
with law enforcement, I would love to do that. The group says offering clinical needs to all different types of communities is critical, which is why they're also offering their services in Spanish. So it'll be one person at a time, but Pulse is going to rotate various social workers through so that we have you know, a variety of people meeting with people based on their specialty. We also have a bilingual um, social worker because we have a pretty high population of bilingual Latino speaking um, uh, residents, so we feel that would be pretty helpful. We're not social workers, we're not therapists, you know, we're police and we have other calls to, to attend to, so it's generally deal with it for right now and move on to the next call, and that's not helping people. Pulse currently operates in a handful of other New Jersey towns, including South Amboy, South River, and Sayreville, where Lieutenant James Novak of the Sayreville Police Department says he's seen positive results in just six months of partnering with Pulse. Um, what I found was 100% of the residents of Sayreville that we used force on during those three years' time had a history with the Sayreville Police Department. On average, 16 prior police contacts where reports were written and we dealt with them. And um, in those 16, there was a history of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, or mental health. So I looked at our use of force difference from the year prior to that year, just to see if Pulse had any effect. In that five, six month period, our use of force amongst residents was lowered 42%. Novak is now confident that the program can help more police departments, not just his. Everyone I spoke with now hopes that the partnership will expand to more departments in New Jersey to work with, not against those with mental health conditions. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Raven Santana. Support for the medical report is provided by Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. That's going to do it for us tonight. This weekend, be sure to tune into Reporters Roundtable. David talks to Micah Rasmussen, director of the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics at Ryder University, about whether Orsted's stunning decision to scrap its offshore wind projects in the state could hurt Democrats at the polls next week. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10. And on Chatbox, David hosts a political panel with GOP strategist Chris Russell and New Jersey State Democratic Committee Chairman Leroy Jones about what's at stake in next week's legislative elections. That's Saturday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10.30 on NJPBS. I'm Joanna Gagas. For all of us at NJ Spotlight News, thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here on Monday. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and by the PSEG Foundation. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.